Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. You've been hearing a lot about ESG investing lately, and the retail sector is definitely getting a lot of attention from the major fund managers. But I'm here to talk with John Rosenberg about what it means exactly and to try to dive under the hood a little bit. ESG investing is a term that has a lot sort of riding with it, and I think it's a bit poorly understood. John, as a matter of fact, is a fund manager for Lachlan Water Partners, and he has specific expertise in ESG management. So we're lucky to have him on. John, welcome aboard. Thanks, Fraser. It's good to be here. So maybe take us through a little bit of your background. I don't think anybody goes to business school or anything like that saying, I want to be an ESG manager, although maybe they are starting to now. Perhaps it is, but no, not <laughs> when you were doing it, that probably wasn't a career path. Tell us a little bit about how you came up through the ranks and learned investment management generally and how that's applied to the ESG world. As you mentioned, I did go to business school after college. That was after doing a few other things, including working for the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and in econometrics. I then went to business school and after business school, I wanted to get into banking, which I did for a while. And I worked on a lot of private transactions. One or two of them were at the time, somewhat ESG-related, if you will. One in particular involved putting a compressed natural gas bus system into Mexico City. It was a very complicated transaction. There was a paradoxical concern amongst many parties, sort of a chicken and egg problem, if you will. The microboost drivers did not want to invest in engine conversion kits until Pemex built gas stations to distribute compressed natural gas fuel, and Pemex did not want to build those stations until they sensed there was appropriate demand for their services and product. Lovely. <laughs> After working in banking for a while, I went to work for a family office at the time to actually help them with one of their private companies engaged in educational services. But that kind of dried up, and I got into investing in the public markets. And towards that end, I worked as a generalist for a couple of years and did a number of things opportunistically. We engaged in convertible arbitrage, capital structure arbitrage, but predominantly I functioned as a analyst and then generalist portfolio manager. And I had this desire to specialize. And I'd always been interested in environmental matters. I grew up sailing while I lived in California. I did a lot of camping, hiking, and mountain biking. That always interested me, but that wasn't really where I was headed at that point in time. However, I was given a chance to raise some money, and I went through this process of determining what sector I wanted to be in. And ultimately, I decided on water because at the time, there weren't many other managers exclusively focused on water. And I was just trying to distill 5,000 years of economic history into three basic principles, select, differentiate, and amplify. So from there, I was able to raise some money and launch Lachlan Water. Before doing that, I went to a number of industry conferences, not investment industry, but the water industry conferences, and spoke to participants in the sector, reporters, 
people who worked at NGOs, people who worked at water utilities, various economists, some hydrologists, learned as much about it as I could for a period of about a year and a half while performing my other job, and then was able to launch my fund, or our fund, I should say. And then thereafter, investing in water, I, we started to kind of gravitate a bit more towards other clean technologies. Cool. That's kind of my SG. It's a nice arc. And I'm also interested, sort of the econometrics component from your experience at the Fed. I think that is going to be interesting and sort of dramatic foreshadowing as to how to sort of assign metrics to ESG success. And before we go any further, I'm going to for our listeners, just remind them that E is environmental, S is social, and G is governance. And under those three banners hang lots of different sort of criteria for social improvement, let's call it, or societal improvement. There's all sorts of vernacular from where ESG came from. And so different terms that are out there, things like sustainable impact investing, SRI, which I can't even remember what that stands for, but that's socially responsible investing. And that that's all sort of, that soup is sort of starting to focus in toward this ESG mantle. Maybe give us a little bit of background on the development of the vernacular and how it's really starting to come to a head here in 2020 and 2021. Well, I'll try, but I will admit, Fraser, there's even a lot of argument in the community itself about what all of this means at times and a lot of different <laughs> And I think that comes probably from marketing. To my knowledge, this all really started with the concept of SRI or socially responsible investing, as you highlighted. And that actually started quite a while ago. In fact, I'm sure it goes back further than this, but early SRI investors were the Society of Friends, Quakers, who discouraged or prohibited their members from investing or engaging in the slave trade. And that was in the 18th century. A more modern equivalent, if you will, SRI got going more probably, I believe it was in the 1980s when certain fund managers decided not to invest in sin stocks. And SRI was basically exclusionary. In other words, speaking of the public markets, investors would avoid certain stocks of companies that engaged in behaviors that did not promote a specific set of social goals. An example of that might be, let's say you were a Catholic-focused fund for whatever that's part of the mission statement of the fund. They would sort of look at companies that didn't conform to Catholic values and stay away from that. Would that be a good example? Absolutely. And there is a family of, I don't know if they're specifically Catholic, but the Calvert Funds does just that. And 30 years ago, a lot of investors started avoiding tobacco and alcohol stocks, as well as big oil. This then kind of transcended or morphed into a lot of people divesting from South Africa. That sort of skews away from, say, an environmental mandate or an ideological mandate and more toward a governance or political mandate. Yes. I believe this was before ESG as a, the concept of ESG had really crystallized. That was more of an SRI type framework. The first ESG funds I'm aware of, well, I'm not sure, and I don't want to be somebody else's commercial, but over time, certain fund managers, the idea of ESG came into play. And contemporaneously, the UN launched their own set of standards. This was in the last decade of 
their policy of performance reporting or sustainability. And I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of what I stood for exactly. Principles for Responsible Investment. Thank you. (laughs) That's right. Sorry, that took me a little while with all of these acronyms. So (laughs) ESG kind of headed away from just excluding companies for doing, again, I'm speaking within the framework of the public markets, from excluding companies from doing bad things, but also trying to encourage companies to effectively do good things. Cool. So as we sort of look at the ESG framework and environmental social governance, what makes ESG stocks different from other ones? Is there any differentiation or is that something that's sort of thought to exist, but not quite there yet? That's a topic that is argued quite a bit. But let me back up for a second and just finish up your last question, because I forgot to mention that out of ESG grew two other frameworks. One was impact investing. In other words, organizing a fund and investing for a very specific set of goals. And the second, which is more modern and more recent, is sustainability or sustainable investing. And sustainable investing is interesting in that we've gone through this evolution, unlike SRI funds, which said we will not invest in companies that we feel are engaging in behaviors that we don't support or are unwarranted. Sustainable investors might look at all the companies in an index and say, well, we need things like energy production and we need mining. So we're going to pick the companies within that sector who might be polluting, but they're still, they're adhering to the best principles that they can. It sounds like it can get gray very quickly. (laughs) There is a lot of grayness and it's very pragmatic as well. But I don't think that ESG stocks actually really are different from other stocks. For one thing, in my experience, as much as I'm an investor who's more concerned about E, the environment, than anything else, I find that companies that really have good G or governance tend to be the best actors anyway. And also from a social perspective, whether it's having diversity within the workforce, women and minorities in board seats or executive ranks, I feel like that principle is being assimilated extremely quickly, certainly amongst the Fortune 500. It may not be happening as quickly as many would like, and I'm sure the numbers bear that out, but at least the attention is there on that front. Is this something where you think that maybe the quantitative aspect or the metrics are being assimilated and ergo that G part of the ESG is happening faster than people are giving it credit for? Well, perhaps. That's a good question. I really don't know. I think it varies from case to case. I mean, while there are certain metrics that investors can use to evaluate whether companies are engaging in behaviors that investors or other actors within society might like to see them do, there's a lot of argument over how effective the metrics are. Let's take this back again to sort of the top here. And it's the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's essay on shareholder theory, which basically says that the social responsibility of business is to increase profits and all of the social good kind of hangs off of that. Do you agree with that? Or is there more of a middle ground with what's happening at the ESG front where other factors and other constituencies are more involved and given at a certain level of importance from the investment community? Well, I certainly agree that Friedman was unquestionably a great thinker, and that his essay marked a seminal 
moment in thinking about business and investment. But I don't really agree with a lot of his essay. I mean, a lot of what he says is true. I mean, you tell me this. Within a legal framework, a corporation that is otherwise obeying all laws and is subject to the laws and local regulations is then solely responsible to its shareholders. It's a tricky one because, especially with the advent of B corporations and other types of scenarios where other constituencies are essentially written into the document. Is that going above and beyond what a business has to deal with from a regulation standpoint? That's an interesting point. Friedman wrote a lot in his essay. And unfortunately for him, in my mind or in my opinion, the rhetoric in the essay does not age particularly well. He continually <laughs> right. refers to businessmen. And he, in another instance in the essay, calls those who want to change things I quote, the current crop of reformers, unquote. And I don't think that terminology has withstood the test of time very well. For one thing, what Friedman was writing about in 1970, as he called them, current crop of reformers, I suspect that a lot of those ideals haven't changed very much 50 years later. I was going to say, I think you're right on that. Additionally, of course, again, I don't want to insult the man for his rhetoric. He was a brilliant thinker, but using businessmen as his example, did not stand up well to time. And Friedman also kind of had a problem in my mind regarding classical economics. In classical economics, pollution can be viewed as merely like pushing your costs onto somebody else. And Friedman wrote a lot about how corporations had to adhere to the law. And he did say at the very end, he certainly called out, he does single out, fraud as a bad outcome or something to certainly avoid. So he's not claiming that shareholders should be rewarded at all costs. But much of his essay is focused on the role of the employee of the corporation as an agent working on behalf of shareholders, and therefore assuming that shareholders only want to maximize profits. As you pointed out, with B corporations or even preceding B corporations, the idea that a lot of companies, for example, in my mind, Starbucks of maybe 25 years ago, stated explicitly that they want to make money for their shareholders, but they also want to give back. So I guess it becomes a question of judgment. Is somebody who buys shares of Starbucks in their account at any given time, are they actually agreeing with that mission statement? Are they agreeing to comply with that? Is that what they agree to? Or are they merely trying to make money speculating on the price of Starbucks? I mean, that's an entirely different debate. But I think if companies are explicit about their goals, I think that kind of gets around Friedman's argument anyway. So sort of looking at that underpinning essay, and I'll have a copy of that in the show notes for people, the driving theory behind ESG investing and I think one of the ideas is that by doing good, you're actually being a better economic driver for your business and for society in general. Do you think that actually promotes virtuous behavior or is it a sort of a stalking horse or maybe skilled marketing? As in anything else, there are elements of marketing by many actors in this equation. Companies might be claiming to be virtuous to attract customers or to keep their employees or perhaps to have better relations with their regulators. So there is that. 
However, another thing that Friedman didn't really delineate clearly when he talked about maximizing shareholder value, to my knowledge, is what is the time frame? If a company produces a product or a service that is not really good for society, but is tremendously profitable for a couple years or some period of time, then over time, its value degrades. Is that really the outcome the shareholders want instead of doing something where all of the customers of that company would be happy with their product or service for a longer period of time? The company would maintain a good reputation within its community and amongst its customers. So I think it's a matter of framework, I guess. One of the issues, I guess the idea that having a good set of metrics to measure what many times are very qualitative types of outcomes in terms of sort of environmental improvement, or maybe this is less qualitative, but it certainly can be cultural, maybe diversity improvement or governance improvements. How do you wrestle with that in your own management when you're looking at companies and the data that supports the ESG component and how it relates to maybe more traditional metrics in terms of profitability and revenue growth and things like that? That's a really good question because that is actually something that I do have to consider quite a bit and it does present a lot of challenges. For example, a lot of the metrics, and there are a number of services out there now, including ISS and various other reporting services that are trying to market these data to people like me and you and anyone. And I don't know how effective those data necessarily are. I'm not going to name the company, but I can think of a company that I've seen through various services well scored on ESG because of a female CEO that, in my mind, has engaged in very questionable pricing behavior for some of its generic drugs at times. I was going to say an example that I trot out often to sort of lay out the quandary here is in the municipal bond space, bonds backed by tobacco revenue very often are bonds that are doing really good things, whether it's promoting health, creating infrastructure, doing a lot of things for states and local municipalities. Yet the revenue that drives those bonds is happening because of tobacco sales. And so you've got sort of a greater good that the security is promoting. And it's, I'd say, easy to prove that. But the source of the revenue that's causing that is questionable or maybe detestable to some investors. And this is a good question for you as a portfolio manager is to say, when you have to draw the line and you're saying, A, it's a good investment, B, it does well, but but C, strike one, the place where the revenue is coming from isn't ideal. How do you think about that? And I guess, how do the data companies think about that in terms of creating a score that is both meaningful, but also practical? Well, that's a great question. I mean, to be honest, I'm not aware of how the data companies would consider that type of structure. And it's tough. <laughs> For that matter, I mean, do the ends justify the means? I've been on the periphery of some municipal and bond investment for a prior job. And I've done some analysis on some of these structures, but I haven't really looked at tobacco bonds. And I guess the question is, if it were something that was a tobacco trust fund, something like that, that was backing the bond, maybe not the source of 
revenue, if you will, but if there was some kind of a trust fund or settlement that the bond had a backing from, that might perhaps, in my mind anyway, at first blush, perhaps if the activity had already occurred and this was redressing it, that would be better than if the activity were continuing to occur and the bond was in fact being supported by something that was ongoing, which I'm, a lot of those bonds are, but not all my knowledge. That's a good point. And some people would call that situational ethics maybe, but on the other hand, it makes sense. If it's redressing a past harm and it's cut off, that causation's been cut off in many ways, maybe that's something that's better. And it'll be interesting to see how these firms score that type of nuance. No, it's a great question. That's something I want to look into after this call. Cool. So the space has exploded in popularity. And even within the last year or so, not only within the fund management space, but even the headhunting space, where the ESG concerns are driving recruitment in many ways. On the asset management side of things, what do you think about the new entrance into the space? Are there a lot of sort of fly-by-nighters that see a good marketing opportunity? And maybe how do you determine which ones, I guess, to respect in terms of sort of commitment to ESG principles versus, I guess, just sort of happen to be there and throwing three letters at a conventionally managed portfolio? In any endeavor, there are always going to be fast followers or, in other terms, carpetbaggers, if you will. But I really welcome new entrants because I think it's for the better overall that more people are interested in this and concerned in this. And there's a virtuous circle to all of this. People are really interested in these issues. Companies, it's promoting a lot of better behaviors, a greater awareness to things. Is there what we call greenwashing sometimes. Absolutely. There are people who are just trying to put their wrapper on this stuff. I've seen ESG ETFs where the predominant holding is Apple or Amazon. And I'm, while I'm not commenting on the conduct of either of those two companies, I'm questioning if you're seeking an ESG type of return or if you're seeking to differentiate yourself or as an investor achieves some type of covariance, investing in two of the larger components of the S&P, whatever their behavior, may not necessarily achieve your ends. But anyway, but overall, I actually welcome the entrance into the space. I agree with you. As you bring smart people into it, it will help solve things like the question we asked about measuring the qualitative and then delineating exactly what ESG factors actually may contribute to investment outperformance if it exists. But to follow up a little bit on new entrants, an interesting example of Jeff Ubin, who was formerly a Value Act, and he basically, he had critical comments of ESG investors, but has sort of turned a different way. What are your thoughts on that? I respect what Jeff Ubin has done in his career. I couldn't not do that for what he's been able to achieve for his investors and while I'm not aware of all of the activism that he was involved in, I'm sure that he was quite successful in it and in some instances did a lot for shareholders at other costs in some other instances, as he himself has noted. But I think his scorn of prior ESG investors is somewhat self-serving. 
he went to go off and start another fund, which seemed to be a quick about face. <laughs> That's one where I sort of look at that and say, well, okay, interesting path. One that I wouldn't call it a red flag, but it's something I would analyze deeply to see what set of facts convinced him to go in a different direction, I suppose. Additionally, there are a lot of other factors at play too. For one thing, I strongly believe activists perform a necessary role in the financial markets. And conversely, I don't think it's best that people, I mean, people need to pay attention to their proxies. And I don't think it's necessarily best that passive funds might just ignore proxies. And it's a good means of promoting better behavior. But these things take time. And I think that Mr. Ubin's scorn for passive, or I presume he means passive, but ESG investors who were there prior to him, I think it's rather self-serving. He claims that ESG may be a good way to grow your AUM. I don't think that's verbatim, that quotation, but essentially a good way to market. But by the same token, disregarding investors who've been passively investing for years or perhaps engaging in other activities, talking to company management, but not necessarily agitating through proxy fights, it's rather self-serving. And I also think it's not very wise on his part because he's potentially criticizing other shareholders who he may someday need to join him in a proxy fight to do what he wants to do. Uh, it's very interesting. I saw an article on it and I said, geez, this is a pretty bald move right here. And it'll be interesting to see how he sorts himself out. It will be very interesting. It is interesting that he has done this. And again, I mean, I welcome him. I think it's a very big tent. There's space in it for him to engage in ESG activism. Absolutely. Room for that as well. So we're starting to wind down here a little bit, but I think the big question in my mind, many investors' minds, certainly folks who are sort of looking at their portfolios and understanding the different marketing that's coming across their desks now, the potential for ESG to be a bubble, like every sort of hot situation that comes across, maybe it's SPAC investing or Bitcoin or gold or tulips. How do you envision ESG fitting in that role? Is it a framework that has legs? Is it something where, to my mind, the indexes and general sort of broader investment managers start borrowing a lot of ESG concepts? How do you think of ESG as a way to sort of stand out and persist over the long haul? Well, I'll give you two answers. My unserious answer as a fund manager is I certainly hope it'll enter a bubble <laughs> if it hasn't so already because I want to benefit from that. But seriously, yes, I mean, there are elements. I've seen this for years with certain companies, not so much in clean tech, which I don't have the breadth of experience with solar companies. Hydrogen companies are very new. Inverter companies, I don't really have that breadth of experience, but I've seen it for the last 10 years or certainly the last eight years with water companies. There is a halo that comes with them. And in some instances, that halo persists. It's like the CFO with a British accent. It's like, oh, add a multiple. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, it's, for some reason, certain companies have a couple more turns on their multiple, and that seems to persist no matter what they do. 
I was going to say, and to try to call a top on that or to try to find where the bubble bursts. To me, it seems like ESG is so broad that even if you had, let's call it a collapse of one factor within one of those three letters, the other ones are so broad that it would be supported somewhere else. I think it's really here to stay. And I might add, historically, I started my career with public securities during the time of the TMT bubble. And there were things that were going on that were just absolutely outrageous in terms of valuation. With someone with a relatively newly minted MBA and working in the CFA program and seeing the valuation. And ultimately, I mean, valuation matters always, not always in the short term. However, I note that years later after the crash, a lot of these companies that had real business plans and I mean, it sort of came back. So these things occur in cycles. So could we get into kind of an ESG bubble and a subsequent ESG crash? Of course, anything is possible. But I believe that with all the other awareness out there right now pertaining to climate change, pertaining to urbanization, pertaining to, quite frankly, COVID has actually done a lot to catalyze the awareness of these issues. I think that, of course, there will be sort of ebbs and flows, but I believe we're in the midst of a secular change. And ultimately, you know, as you said, valuation is important and cash flow is important. If these businesses return cash, in addition to adhering to these principles, they will persist no matter what other people are thinking about. It's just going to happen. Absolutely. And I mean, Friedman pointed out in his essay, I believe that smaller companies could engage in virtuous behaviors that larger ones could not. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I mean, there are companies that might engage in virtuous behavior as part of their interface with their customers. We see that becoming more apparent with a firm like Patagonia, for instance, which makes it a big part of their culture as far as giving back and doing all sorts of, I would describe it as extreme philanthropy and just creating a culture of environmentalism and giving back. And it's a successful company. I think that's from a bottom-up perspective, that's part of what makes Patagonia Patagonia, but that's bubbling up to other companies around its space and beyond. Absolutely. And Nike, a far larger company in terms of sales, Patagonia is a private company, but in terms of sales, a far larger company periodically over the years has run into trouble because of their sourcing issues. Or because they've tried to promote certain social causes that may not have appealed to some of their potential customers. We could be talking about this for probably three and a half more hours, but I'm going to wind it down here. So John, what's the best way for folks to stay in touch with you and what you're thinking about and how you're investing? I write a blog. Well, excuse me. I write a piece that I'm happy to get to people every week on my thoughts on clean tech investing, and I publish it on LinkedIn. And you can find me on LinkedIn at Lachlan Water Partners. We don't maintain a website for the firm at this point in time, though I've thought about doing that. But I'm not that hard to find for anyone with a probably LinkedIn or Google. Well, and I will put those links on the show notes on the website. So anybody listening will be able to find you as they want. As we finish off here, it's not, it's not all hard work. It looks like we may have a vaccine, according to Pfizer, and it looks like we're trying to lurch towards some sort of sense of normalcy after the election. What's one of the things that you want to do, either if you're able to travel or otherwise 
sort of benefit from a relaxing of restrictions? It's a very long list. For sure. <laughs> there are a lot of things I'd like to do. And I saw the news this morning about Pfizer, and I look forward to the successful launch of their vaccine. And I hope it is very successful. I think it's going to be quite some time, though, until it's really rolled out. But I look forward to just basically being able to go out and meet friends without any of these other tensions involved. Really that simple. Just go to a restaurant or go to someone's house and meet friends. I mean, I certainly want to travel again, but on a more basic level, just ending some of this isolation. I couldn't agree more. John, great stuff. Thank you for being on. And I think we ought to revisit this discussion later. So if you're available, I'd love to do that as we start getting more and more data. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time as well. And I've really enjoyed it. Terrific. Thanks, John. Take care now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.